Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 101. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, you got an extra addition to the family since the last show, man. How are things going around there? Man, it's great. Uh, Piper's here. She's good. She's healthy. All that kind of good stuff. And so, uh, hate to miss last week, but it just just <laughs> wasn't going to happen. So, uh, glad to be back. And a lot going on, man. We get ready for Baffin Bay this Friday. So, if you haven't signed up, you want your chance to win. Our next trip is in May. Josh and I were just looking at the calendar. Uh, we'll shove off uh, May 24th and 25th, or the, the dates for that. So, Texas Oil and Gas Podcast dot com slash fishing is where you can sign up josh you know the last time we were on we had uh an interesting discussion about um beto and him signing um the the no fossil fuel money deal did you see the review that we got uh in in the comments about about um uh, from speaker he went and updated his, his review and uh and, and this is side note speaker i'd love to get you on the show if you want to you might want to remain anonymous but if you want to get on be you know you got to find us be happy to, to talk to you but did you happen to see that review if, if not i can uh i can read it i did i did uh i don't have it up pulled up right now but i did see it okay well i'll just read it real quick it says um he, he changed the title to republican oil investor voting democrat over trump and he says, um, this was on April 2nd. So first first of all, another excellent podcast. Refreshing to have someone take a stance and say what they believe when it comes to money, oil, politics. Oil equity investors will vote Democrat over any Republican in 2020, as ultimately this will increase oil prices and reduce small EMP companies. I would I, I voted Trump for, I voted Trump for 2016 and in fact never have voted Democrat in my lifetime. Fool me once, okay, not a second time. He is worse, talking about Trump, for oil prices than any Democrat. I know a lot of oil equity investors feeling the same way. Trump despises high or even moderate oil prices. In fact, when oil is low, he tweets to have it even lower. As a large oil equity investor, I will vote for Democrat over Trump. Democrats will regulate frackers to death, but the largest players will cope with it. Small players will not be able to. Then Permian will reduce output. I foresee Saudi Arabia jacking up price uh, oil, uh, price of oil before 2020 election to hurt Trump and get Democratic president to scale back fracking in U.S. Mark my words, timestamp this. Saudi Arabia will ensure Trump's defeat by having very oil prices before 2020 election. Small EMPs will love this and will continue to pumping pumping like mad. Then Trump loses a Democrat, is elected president, and all the small EMPs will be forced out of business. Strong players like EOG, Oxy, etc. Um, will only soar higher. So vote Democrat if you want higher oil prices and are fed up with Trump and his nonsense of rock-bottom oil prices. So we asked uh, Josh for a reason to vote um, for Beto specifically. Um, and, and he's he's saying in general he's voting for a Democrat over Trump. And so I guess the question would be, would you even go as far as someone... Um, who's you know extremely anti oil and gas, but generally his premise is, hey, Trump's out there always talking about lower oil prices, always putting pressure on them, and he's tired of it. And this is something on the Energy Week podcast. I've been critical of Trump. I said that you know you're going to lose your base, especially if you see the prices collapse, which is the opposite of what he's uh, speaking or saying here. But if you see the prices collapse before the next election, I think a lot of his 
um, base and voters will feel disenfranchised because for a couple of years now he's been openly endorsing um, lower gas prices and he got it and it's hurting those who support him. You know, and, and, and I think that's a I think it's an interesting debate. And I think it's personally Trump's public policy on this is very dangerous. He's flirting with a with a very fine line here. Um, but I thought it was interesting. Hey, there, there's a reason that you won't hire prices, vote Democrat. Um, the only thing I guess I would say, Josh, uh, to kind of wrap up my thoughts is you have an issue with the foreign policy. Um, and it, it feels like from speaking your standpoint that um, the Saudis are going to try to get Trump out of office by raising the prices is kind of what he's, what he's referring to there. Um, and I'm not sure... I guess it would depend on the next Democratic nominee because obviously the U.S. is engaged with um, with the Saudis in Yemen, and I think if you had a candidate that was you know anti that was really pushing back on that, that might give the Saudis a little bit of pause. Um, and so there's some, there's some other things to play there, but I I, I can definitely see um, some of the things he's saying is about about why folks could feel disenfranchised during the Trump administration, a guy that they felt like was going to be their candidate. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious about uh, with some of the some of the things we're going to talk about today with Trump. Some of the deregulation he signed some bills to try, to try to help expedite some of the midstream infrastructure to transport the oil, which in turn gives opportunities to oil companies to produce more oil. I'm just wondering if those things need to be taken into an account as well, because I I'm with you. I don't like I don't like you know him pushing for lower oil prices, but it seems that there are other things that he's doing to help ramp up uh, U.S. production um, and uh, also being able to export that and also developing infrastructure and, and deregulating things to give companies more leeway so that you know, we can make more action. Yeah, and I know we got a guest coming on, so we got to wrap up off this. One thing I'll say is that, and I think this is interesting, some of the things we're talking about deregulation is... Um, we have to be careful to to, to to say deregulation and at the same time, is he actually violating states' rights? You know, and so there's there's kind of a balance there that you, you kind of have to watch when you're talking about deregulation. Obviously, you know, if you listen to the show, you kind of know where Josh and I stand on a lot of that stuff. It's it's really um, abused um, and overused. So that would be my only concern there. But it is interesting. I, I think that, you know, um, and we're about to talk about some news and some things that we're, we're seeing the market coming up. Um, but that is an interesting perspective is, hey, if you're someone who's been in the industry for a while, you don't want a downturn, and you feel like the Democrats are actually the better party for oil and gas, you know, that's an interesting way to look at it. And so, um, again, speaking of come on, be happy to hear and, and kind of parse that out a little bit. Anyways, but um, um, I, I thought that was an interesting comment. We asked for it, Josh. We got it. And, you know, I think we... Uh, on the show, we, 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 we've been pretty consistent. We're definitely open to, to, to talking about issues and uh, getting different viewpoints. And so I, I really do appreciate that yeah. um, from speaking. Absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, definitely interesting and something you know I hadn't, hadn't thought of you know, in that way yet. So um, it was good stuff. Well, we got a big news that came out last Friday, Ron. I was headed to Dallas, had a meeting, and uh, all of a sudden news feed started popping uh chevron bought anadarko for what's reported to be 33 billion which some of the some of the other information out there i'm showing it could have been like a 50 billion dollar deal in total once you factored in the debts and stuff that chevron took a huge deal for chevron uh and there's lots of different facets to this to to really consider about how 
other players are going to be acting. Um, you know, Chevron stocks dropped, I believe, 5% after they did that. Uh, Anadarko has increased. Um, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff going on right now, but it's definitely an interesting deal to watch. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's funny. I had someone listen to the show who I was talking to on Friday, and they goes, didn't you guys just say that this won't be happening? And so I said, you know, let's clear some of this up on the show. And so um, one thing is when you talk a lot on these podcasts, you can't remember everything you said. But I think the comment they're referencing was is that Josh and I had um, coffee with someone. And that person said that if you're a small EMP, um, don't look to be flipping your acreage. You know, go in there with a long-term business strategy. And I don't think this dynamic actually changes that. Now, maybe I think about what Josh and I said, that, but I think that's, if we weren't clear in that, that's what we're saying. Um, the other thing I think we've said, Josh, um, regularly, and if not, let's clarify this now, is that we talked a week or two ago about the big companies showing interest in the Permian and how that's a good thing. That means that... Um, there's a lot of doubters out there about what's going to happen in the Permian Basin, but the fact these big companies keep investing their money in there is a good thing long-term. And the final thing, I know I've said on Energy Week, and I think I said on here, is that the more diverse companies, these, these majors, that can, uh, they can drill it, they can move it, they can refine it. I think they are the long-term future, especially on the production side of things, um, for the Permian Basin, because you do see a lot of these, these shell producers, and it's questionable um, how much success they're having as on the balance sheet, at least. So, um, so just to clarify some of that stuff, I, I don't know if that was clear or not been clear, or um, you know, maybe we didn't articulate it properly. With that being said, Josh, I never in a million years thought this was going to happen. Uh, it wasn't even on my radar. So <laughs> it's not like I'm sitting here saying, hey, yeah, I thought this was going to happen, and yeah, you know, this is coming around the corner, and here we go. And um, and I thought it also offset some uh, more depressing news that we saw while I was off, which was that Pioneer was laying off a bunch of people. Let's see here. They are laying off um, 300 jobs, and this came out on the 5th, right after Piper was born. Um, so it kind of offset that news. From one Friday, you have Pioneer cutting. The next Friday, you have Chevron buying off Anadarko. Um, the final thing I thought um, just kind of initially was, you know, uh, Oxy actually put in a bid for more, more. than what mm-hmm. Chevron was, but there was some logistics on the management side of things or something, according to David Blackman, that uh, I think he's referring to a, a CNBC report. Anyways, but that, you know, that kind of kind of messed that deal up. But, yeah, so, again, I, I think, you know, as we go through these periods where you see the good news, you see the bad news, the question for me is going to be, and we're going to talk about a story in a second, I'll kind of reference this again, is how is the market acting? Um, things happen in the market, and you, you're you just trying to follow these trends. You know, what are people doing? How are they responding? Chevron buying into the Permian, I think, is a good sign for the Permian um, long-term, and it means that while there are still concerns about shell producers, that these these big boys, these majors, they can see things and they have access to information and balance sheets. They're looking at them a little bit differently than we are, uh, and they see long-term potential in the Permian. So overall, despite some of the bad news we got about Pioneer and some other companies, uh, I think this is still um, a positive look outlook, at least for the Permian. You start seeing these big get these big guys selling off their assets, I think um, then you might be looking a little bit, you know, uh, some some concern. Yeah, and it, it makes me, you know, I think uh, some of the other players are probably going to come in behind Chevron. And uh, I think we, you know, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, I was talking to someone in the field and they were, their impression was that a lot of these smaller companies are probably going to start moving elsewhere because it's going to get so competitive and the big guys are going to basically take up the Permian. 
Um, and just curious to see where they're going to go because Chevron, actually, they got some acreage in Colorado that mm-hmm. Anadarko had because mm-hmm. they said that Anadarko was the biggest uh, producer in Colorado's DJ Basin. Um, so assuming that that, you know, that Senate bill 19181 doesn't go through. And then also, um, I, I didn't know this until I read it from Blackman in his Forbes piece. He mentioned that Chevron also got, you know, 12,000 miles or so of uh, midstream pipeline mm-hmm. um, that was also included in the sale. So lots of stuff that uh, that Chevron's picking up here. Right. Yeah, no, it's um, it's good. It's uh, a lot of positive things. And, you know, I guess I, one thing I didn't look up, I meant to look up is um, I know they're getting their, let's see here, um, you know, the, according to Blackman, they are getting the Gulf of Mexico and their international stuff. And that, that's something to consider is that uh, in Anadarko, I know dealing with some of the Africa stuff, has some African assets. So there's other things in play here, but um, it's good. And as you mentioned, they're getting 12,509 miles of pipe. Now, the only concern I would have is um, as, you know, if, if, this, if this trend continues, let's say, and you start to see the majors buy up, um, your, your pioneers, your Anadarkos, your EOGs, um, folks like that. If you do see that in your in your um, a smaller company, you might be a little bit concerned because working for those majors is you know like Exxon Mobil is a little bit more uh, time consuming, a little bit more costly, um, things like that than if um, if you're trying to work for you know, one of those companies I mentioned. So how does the MSA process change? Does it change? Are the insurance requirements different? Those are some of the things I think you want to watch moving forward because um, you might have been working for Anadarko, uh, but now can you work for Chevron? Or will they have new, more stringent requirements that prevent you from being able to work for them? That's going to be you know something that I've wondered is you, you see in the stocks, for example, that Anadarko's stocks are doing really well, but Chevron's are actually going down some. So I think there's some hesitation on the Chevron side, but a lot of excitement on the Anadarko side of the stock market. Uh, I believe they were up. I mean, they were up huge amounts. Anadarko was, and uh, I think Chevron. It says they dropped the most since February of 2018. So the most, the biggest drop they've had in over a year came a day after. Um, well, you know, the, the very next day after they had that huge acquisition. So definitely some questions there. All right. Uh, so the, the next thing, right, we had some uh, – Trump came in. I mentioned the, the infrastructure stuff. He had those two executive bills that he passed. He came into town, and there was, uh, there was a kind of a mixed response. You know, you had praise from the industry because it was going to help, you know, unhamstring them to, you know, get to work and, and put in these pipelines and get land. But the environmentalists were not happy at all. You know, they, they, they sent in some stuff. So Sergio over at Houston Chronicle, he had several pieces of, I don't know if it's emails or mail that was sent in with responses from different groups. Uh, it was interesting to read some of these because, um, you got the industry on one hand and the environmentalists on the other, and it's just, um, it's not, the environmentalists, they're always at that fever pitch. They're, they're extremely unhappy, and the industry is extremely excited, so uh, kind of polar opposites. Yeah, and not, not a lot to say here. It's good, it's good piece by Sergio, kind of shows you both sides of the issue. Um, you know, I, I think the, the thing that stuck out for me was, um, let's see here, there was... There were some folks saying that, you know, that Trump wasn't really being, um, this is the anti-side, that he wasn't really being sympathetic to the folks that, you know, with, with the explosion and stuff like that. So, okay, we can, that's a debate that we can have. But 
the, the I think that the, the problem that that I had was, and this is not this is not a knock on Sergio. He's just taking these quotes. Yeah. So let's just kind of take this. So these these comments aren't directed at Sergio. He's just um, reporting here, in which Sergio does a great job of this for kind of reporting. Um, so these are more the questions I would have is. Um, there are some things in this piece when you look at it and you say, okay, um, you know, the pro-pipeline people were pro-pipelines, the anti-pipeline people were anti-pipelines. And I guess, Josh, the, the, the thing that I don't understand, and it's, you know, I don't know, again, um, here's one quote from uh, Luke Metzger. I believe I've got that, the executive director from Environment Texas. His actions will help big campaign donors like Kelsey Warren while raising the risk of more accidents, spills, and harm to people and our environment. Um, and he goes, we need, uh, before they said, we need stronger, not weaker sta- weaker standards on pipelines. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, it's, I think what you're saying is true. You read some of these comments, it's like, well, okay, what what standards do we need? Um, what are the more standards? Because if you look at what's going on with some of these pipelines across the U.S. and how they get hung up, um, in regulatory burden, it, it, it seems to be a bit excessive. And the other thing is, is that if we're not putting pipelines in the ground, then we're trucking and training this oil, and that's less safe. And so I just would like a little bit of balance on how, and this, again, not at Sergio, just the people who are commenting here. I'd like to understand just how you think about this a little bit differently because the oil comes out the ground, and it's got to go somewhere. So you can put in a pipeline, a truck, or a train, um, so are you saying you'd rather have it in a truck or a train? Because that's ultimately what you're getting at here. And and there's other comments in here you could point out as well. But that that was kind of the the disappointing thing is like it's if you if you want to push back its pipelines, okay. But what what what's what what exactly should we look at? And um it feels like when you see this it's kind of the standard MO um to do this. And and the final thing I'll say is on this is that while we are applauding Trump for this, um he needs to get rid of them tariffs. So I'm just gonna <laughs> just gonna throw that shot in there. Get rid of them tariffs, dude, because they ain't helping nobody. Yeah, I'm hoping that'll get resolved here pretty soon. I mean, this is uh yeah, it's time. It's time. I, I think I think it's they've played their role as well as they are, and now it's time to I don't know if they off. played the role or not. I just I don't I don't know about that, but I I would say well, that you know, looking to uh to bring in some steel from overseas right now, working on a on a business deal and you know, it's just it's absolutely it's absolutely insane the the, the tariffs. So um, especially what you had to pay for it's um, it's 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 a tragedy. It's a travesty. Yeah. Well, I mean, even from an economic standpoint, though, they, I think he was trying to wager or, or barter with them, and I think that process should be should be closed by now. We got to go one way or the other, but they need they need to come off. Sure, they did. Well, at best, at worst case scenario, they need to come off of the nations that aren't involved with uh, the China dispute, which is I'm not yeah. dealing with Chinese steel, so it's like yeah. you know, get rid of that stuff and nothing else. But um, but anyways, I I just want to say you know, hey, listen, there's there's things Trump does pro industry. We talked about at the beginning. He's always um, you know, wanting lower prices. I think that you know, to try, we can't we can't uh, we have to be careful to say, well, the environmentalists never. Uh, you know, or, or give anything rational on other, on on their opposing view, and and I want to be careful that there there are definitely things that Trump does that I don't think are are good for the industry, and we need to be need to be mindful of that otherwise you become a a cheerleader of someone, and you always cheer what they do with, without ever being critical of the things that they're doing that they're wrong, and um, and and I, in this case the, the tariffs is something that if you want to help the industry, quit talking about low oil prices and you know get rid of them tariffs.
All right, we have a special guest on the show today, Mr. Carr Ingham. He is the Petroleum Economist for the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Mr. Carr, we appreciate you having on the show today, man. Excited to, to get into it with you. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on saying both of my names correctly. <laughs> yeah, it, it can get a little tongue twisted. I've been practicing this morning. Though. <laughs> well, I'm Carl Ingram to way too many people out there, and neither one of those is right. So nice job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I sympathize. I'm a uh, Ray or Ryan, Ray, Ray Ryan, and so I, I'm not as uh, yours is a, a kind of a tongue twister. Mine's just people can't remember me. I'm not, I'm not important enough to be remembered. So <laughs> I'm not going to have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. Um, let's let's just kind of take you weren't here before, obviously, uh, when Josh and I were talking. Let's kind of take you to the discussion we've been having, which is obviously the huge news over the weekend was about Anadarko and Chevron, um, and so. We'll break this into two parts. Let you answer like that. So first, you know, kind of maybe your reaction to that news, and the second thing is, um, Josh and I have kind of talked on the show is that it seems to me the long term play in the in the Permian here, especially, is going to be these majors who can drill it, ship it, and refine it themselves. They seem to be. I'm not going to say going to have a hundred percent of the, the acreage, obviously, because it's a you know free market and things happen. But to me, this seems to be the long term trend that we're going to see in the Permian, that maybe 10 years from now we're looking where the majors have a, a lot larger foothold than they do today because they can kind of do things. Um, do you agree with that premise? And yeah, if so, why? Or maybe you don't, and, and why not? So, uh, so again, so thought reaction to the, to the merger, um, and then secondly, how does this shape or does it change anything you might see long-term in the industry? Sure. Well, first things first. So I began doing a general economic work and oil and gas-related economic work in the Permian, in the late 1990s. And uh, I started out doing just general economic analysis and set up a couple of tracking devices for the general uh, economy in Midland Odessa called the Midland Odessa Regional Economic Index. Well, as you might suspect, you can't really become a regional general economist in the Permian without kind of turning yourself into an oil and gas guy. And so I started doing some uh, Permian level uh, oil and gas economic work as well, created this thing called the Texas Permian Basin Petroleum Index, which still exists that the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers owns, actually. It's just a tracking device for the regional oil and gas economy in the Permian. So what was happening in the Permian leading up to the late 1990s was uh, that the majors were very involved out there. And when I say majors, I'm actually using that term a little bit incorrectly. Majors and very large publicly traded independents, companies that most people have heard of, uh, as opposed to the smaller independents in, uh, in the Permian that people there have heard of, but people outside the region really haven't heard that much about. So the majors and the large publicly traded independents were very active in the Permian, um, were really driving the nature of activity out there. We had an, an, a crude oil price downturn in 1998 where prices went from 20-something bucks a barrel down into the single digits. Well, this was a watershed event in the nature of Permian oil and gas economics because over the course of that period of time, the majors and large publicly traded independents were bailing out of the Permian like crazy. So you could open up the Midland Reporter Telegram or the Houston Chronicle and read about, almost on a daily basis, about 200 jobs that were le that left the, 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 the uh, Midland Odessa metro area of the Permian 
because of these companies shuttering uh, their operations out there. So it was a bloodbath uh, in the late 1990s there, and uh, the general economy took a big hit. And so what happened at that point in time was um, when those guys left, those assets were largely left in the hands of uh, the smaller, uh, more localized independents. Well, I theorized at the time, and it may have just kind of been uh, 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 you know, positive thinking in a time of, uh, in a very difficult time, uh, that, that that might be a good thing. You know, these guys are more connected to the region. Uh, more of the dollars will stay there, that sort of thing. Um, and so this was the case, really, uh, all throughout the decade of the 2000s. So post-recession 2009, uh, when uh, we uh, began to explode crude oil production nationally, statewide, in the Permian, um, Eagleford as well, but, uh, uh, but Permian, of course. Uh, the, the Permian turns into something that we didn't really know existed, and that is a region that could grow crude oil production rather than just to observe this uh, 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 institutional decline that seemed to be there and was always going to be there from here on out. So when the Permian turned around, uh, these uh, production techniques of hydraulic uh, fracture, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing were employed and Permian production began to explode. Well, this began to attract these companies back to the Permian. And so that's uh, what we're witnessing right now. Um, and we're watching large companies like Chevron, uh, others as well, though, are really putting down some deep roots. But this is not new. All you have to do is drive out to the west side of Midland and see the extraordinary headquarter offices that these companies are building out there. And I'm talking about Chevron and Oxy and uh, uh, just these glorious, uh, which I have no problem with, by the way. But what it tells you is those companies are in for the long haul uh, out there. And so it's just been interesting to watch this history of coming and going in the Permian. Uh, and what we know now that we didn't know then is um, – that Permian production is going to continue to grow. This was not the thought process in the late 1990s or most of the decade of the 2000s, but we know it to be the case now. And so this is the uh, attractive spot, one of the more attractive spots on the globe now. And these companies know they can go in there, increase their production, take a, a, a bigger slice of the pie. Uh, and at the same time, time, push down the cost of doing business out there. And so uh, that's sort of where we find ourselves today. Um, so let, let's talk, you, you mentioned the long-term roots. One of the things, um, and I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on this, is that, but, but I do want to get your, your take on it, if you have one, is that um, if you look internationally, there's a lot of fear that the, uh, the, the Permian oil, if you will, has kind of flooded the market. And, and, and to me, there's a lot of smart people who can who look at that and say, well, the Permian, you know, the, the light speed crude is too much of it. Um, and, you know, it, there's no long-term um, way to remedy this problem. But I, as you mentioned, there is this investment out there in the Permian Basin, which to me kind of goes, you know what, there's a lot of smart people who are putting their own dollars at, at risk here, um, which means... I think that they're going to be able to figure this out. It doesn't mean that hey, companies make mistakes and do things wrong all the time, but I do think if you look at it from a standpoint of um, the international market and how much lights recruit it really wants, um, the fact that you keep to see these big companies invest there, um, I, I take that as a good sign because that that's another obstacle that, that they, they feel like they're going to be able to overcome. 
Well, uh, uh, your point is well taken. I mean, what private companies decide to do, even if they're massive, what private companies decide to do with their dollars and where they choose to target their investments and all these sorts of things tells us that they believe that there's going to be a market need for what they are going to be producing in the near-term future and the long-term uh, future. But somebody like me, an economist, all we really have to do is look at what the market is telling us. Uh, and if the market had the sense that uh, there's no place to put all this crude oil that we're producing in the Permian and elsewhere, uh, the price of that product would be a whole lot lower than it is. Uh, and it's just that simple. Uh, we can ruminate uh, all day long about what we um, uh, about the wisdom of these companies and the choices that we're making and whether or not there's too much product uh, coming to market and so on and so forth. That's why we have markets. They answer these questions for us. And the market is clearly valuing crude oil at, you know, roughly 60 bucks a barrel now as opposed to 20 bucks a barrel. And that's all I need to answer that question. If that situation changes, the market will tell us uh, whether or not we need more or less of that stuff, and it will send us a price signal uh, uh, accordingly. Yeah, and I, I guess this one final thing, Josh and I, we're, we're going to get to a story today, but we didn't have time. Um, the kind of um, made me think about this. It's about the sand market right now, and that the sand market is um, depressed because um, you know that a lot of people got into the sand business. We talked about the show last year. Sand business was great, and now the sand business is almost overly flooded. And, and I read the story, and I obviously feel bad for the people who risked their money and it, it turned out bad. But I also realized that you know that means that the market is going to have to figure out how to do sand differently. They're talking about shipping it overseas, and so when you talk about this stuff, I think you're right. Sometimes we read the headline. And we don't realize that um, that the market is reacting to these things. And sometimes bad things happen. The market, people lose their jobs, and we don't want to be not sensitive to that. But it also means that people are going to adapt. They're going to find new ways to do things. And so as an economist, um, just, just real quick, walk me through how you read these headlines. Because sometimes we read the headline, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's doom and gloom. But we don't realize that, um, you know what, there's other, other things that the market might do or will do to, to solve these problems. Well, uh I, uh, uh, you know, headlines are one thing and I, I pay attention to some of them. I don't pay attention to other ones. Uh, I, I hope that I have the, the proper view from an economic standpoint. Um, and you're quite correct about sand, but, you know, the most notable event, I think, in terms of pricing and you know, reading headlines and what we thought were horrible things that were occurring and so on and so forth would have been this period of time from 2002 to 2008. When crude oil prices began to uh, to uh, to to move from one tier, one plane to another, so we were from a period of time where crude oil prices were routinely twenty something bucks a barrel, up to a period of time in mid two thousand eight where prices peaked out at sniffing one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel on a daily basis. Well, my goodness, the headlines. Um, uh, for a several-year period of time there, and worse than that. I mean, these sort of created documentaries, all manner of books that were written and so on and so forth about what terrible things were occurring and were about to occur because of this increase, dramatic, uh, dramatic, uh, sharp, um, transformational increase in crude oil prices. Well, my goodness, little did we know at that time um, what markets were doing for us. Yes, we were paying nearly $4 a gallon for uh, uh, gasoline. Uh, and yes, the cost of household energy usage and energy to households and businesses and all of this was on the rise. But of course, what we were doing 
And what the market was doing was setting us up for this period of time that came later, uh, where, yes, indeed, we do turn crude oil production around from decades of structural decline to these dramatic increases, uh, which in turn end up pushing prices down, most notably from 2014 to 2016. And so I maintain, and you'll have a difficult time arguing this point with me, I think, that what was occurring in that period of time when prices were going sky high is that we were setting ourselves up and the market was setting us up for a domestic, long-term, abundant, affordable supply of energy for literally decades to come. You never really know what markets are at work doing on our behalf. And it's virtually impossible for even the smartest guy on the planet or in the country or in the room to um, uh, to have some understanding of that. And so I just always trust markets and I don't trust headlines for the most part. Well, we love the markets here, so you're in a good company. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for that. Um, I wouldn't spoil it for a fight, but, you know. <laughs> I'll take one. <laughs> hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, we talk about markets and stuff a lot. And, uh, you know, it's it, the balance we have, I think, and in, 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 I don't want to get too far off this bunny trail is, is that sometimes the markets are, um, you know, they're reacting to things like, you know, you see right now um, how things happen and then you have the government influence. And so sometimes it is kind of hard to read, you know, how much is the, the market being influenced by other things that really shouldn't be influenced in the market, but but uh, the pure market, I, I agree, is is great, and the results from that are, are positive to where we're at in the Permian Basin today. Um, now, we're talking this week. This is a recording on Monday the fifteenth, but next week we will be seeing you actually in the flesh up in Wichita. Uh, it's Wichita, right? Next weekend, next week at the Wichita Falls. Uh, that's right. Yeah, Wichita Falls. So break break down the event. It'll be uh, myself and Josh and. We're even dragging old Nate up there with us, so we'll be up there. Where are we going to be at next week, Carr, uh, when we get to uh, hang out for a little bit? And there's some golf going on and some other things as well, I believe. Well, I had the great pleasure of uh, getting to know um, uh, you guys and uh, seeing Nate in person at our annual meeting, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual meeting in Irving, Texas, uh, a couple or three weeks back. And that actually marks the first time in the history of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, a statewide organization, that that meeting has been held anywhere except Wichita Falls. Our retired president, who kind of brought the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers into existence, um, lived in Wichita Falls. We had a great base of membership and support for that meeting there, but we moved it to Irving to begin to take on a more statewide feel. So what we don't want to do is abandon uh, our meeting presence uh, and our appreciation for Wichita Falls, for North Texas oil and gas producers that uh, were kind of the starting point uh, and our membership foundation for the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. So what this is, is just an appreciation day uh, for the oil and gas industry in Wichita Falls and in North Texas and that kind of whole North West Central Texas surrounding community. And so uh, it's just going to be a fun day of some golf and some really good food. A group called the Mavericks there that uh, cook just these fabulous beef ribs. I mean, these are going to be the most outstanding things you've ever laid lips on. I'm pretty confident in saying that. Um, and it's just a chance to express our appreciation to our North Texas uh, uh, memberships there. So this is the Wichita Falls Country Club on Monday, April 22nd. Okay, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And if they are as good as you say they are, I will not tell my wife that 
that that, that, that they were the most outstanding things I've ever I've ever laid my lips on. Um, that might not go over well with her, but uh, uh, you're a smart man, and I have uh, <laughs> tended to uh, behave the same way. Although she usually gets a picture of them. <laughs> well, hmm. good deal. Uh, yeah, I can't send pictures. I like sending pictures normally while I'm out on the road, but being that we just had a baby a week and a half ago, uh, I, I got to be careful on. Yeah, on, 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 uh, on what I say and what I don't say. So, well, look, it's been great, Car. Obviously, for the listener's point of view, we have a, another show called The Oil and Gas Contractor Connect, and we had Car on there. His episode hasn't come out yet, but you can subscribe. We'll link that in the show notes. And we had a great talk uh, with Car on there just a few weeks ago uh, that we did that, and so enjoyed it. And we'd love to get you on again in the future to help break down what's going on in the Texas oil and gas indus- industry, and look forward to seeing you uh, next Monday. Well, what a great pleasure to visit with you guys again. Can't wait to see you in person and uh, look forward to future visits. Well, another thanks to Mr. Carr Ingham for coming on the show today. And uh, you know, he had a lot of great insights. So big, big thanks to him. And uh, conference Monday, April 22nd, Wichita Falls. That is the, is that a Texas Alliance Energy Partners? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if anybody's in the region... Um, Try to stop by. We'd love to see you. Yeah, yeah. We'll be out there. We're actually Josh Shelton is making his public Texas oil and gas debut. And so um it you know, it, it feels like there should be a red carpet or something for you, Josh. Maybe some paparazzi to finally get your 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 face out there. It's good to see that you're actually willing to meet with the people in twenty nineteen. It's taking you two years to be a man of the people, like myself. Um, but, uh, it's good to see you finally getting out there and, you know, look, looking to meet some of the listeners. I, I don't think that there's, you got a lot of fans, so it's not like a lot of people will see you, but the, you know, your one or two fans on the show might enjoy actually meeting you. Yeah, it's time to break out the big gun, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and final thing is Bath and Bay Rod and Gun. Be sure to sign up for the fish trip. They are the sponsor of the Texas Gas Podcast. We really appreciate them. We are going to rip a little lip on this Friday, and I'm sure, I'm sure, 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 next Monday we'll be here to tell you how many more fish I caught than the one and only Josh Shelton. Um, <laughs> and let's just put it out there, Josh, right now. We had the Bath and Bay beatdown last time, and while we were there, you were kind of mocking me on maybe my fish weren't that big. Of course, I caught like 10 times as many as you did, so it doesn't really matter. Are we going for the size of the fish? Or the number of fish. Let's just get it on the official record right now. What is the? What are we going for here? Well, well, well there's 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 three different kinds. You can either go number of fish, number of pounds, or who catches the biggest fish. Or what? Which? How do you you, you pick? You well, pick I don't want to weigh all the fish, so I don't think let's let's yeah, throw, let's, let's throw poundage out. So we can do quantity, or we can do or the how biggest many fish. keepers do you catch? Because I think we'll do about yeah, that's like one like more. That. How many keepers? How many keepers? You catch. You caught none, so I won last time, and uh, I caught I don't know three or four dozen, I think myself. Uh, so <laughs> two two keepers. Man. <laughs> the boat was about to sink. I had so many keepers back there, but uh, number of keepers it is, and we will report back to you guys if you're looking to take a client, family, friends, whatever. Baffin Bay Rod and Gun is the spot for you. And until next time, keep climbing.